I'm so thankful for the time I've had uh, with our seniors uh, these past couple years. They truly have uh, filled my life with so much encouragement and joy. Uh, and, and I praise God for, for giving me this opportunity to, to witness his, his faithfulness, his power, and his grace at work in their lives. And so I'm excited and I'm honored that, that God would give me this chance, this opportunity to, to send them all, to deploy them with an exhortation from his word. And to that end, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. So let's go ahead and read our passage, pray, and dig in. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our good and faithful God, our God who has saved us not according to our works, but according to your purpose and your grace given to us in Christ before the ages began. The God of the heavens, we pray, asking that you would bless us with spiritual wisdom, discernment. Allow the truth to penetrate our hearts in a transformational way. Encourage us this morning from your word, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we begin our exposition of the passage this morning. As we do, I want you to know that verse 7 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, which indicates then that what's about to be said in verse 7 and following is directly linked to what came before. And if we were to look back at that preceding passage, we would see that more specifically in the second half of verse 6, there's that logical connection. The author of Hebrews writes there in that verse 6 saying, and we are his house, the house of Christ, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, in this context, to be the house of Christ is, is simply another way of saying that we are God's people. We are partakers, recipients of all his eternal, glorious blessings. We are his house. But according to the writer, this is only true of us if, that is on this condition, we hold fast to our confidence. According to the writer then, the question that determines our salvation is not, did you trust Jesus into your heart in fourth grade? 
The question is not, were you baptized or confirmed? Uh, It's not, did you become a, a member of a church or go on a mission trip or attend a church camp? It's not, did you raise your kids in the church? It's, did you, did I trust and obey and worship Christ until I died? That's the question. The proof of our salvation is in the perseverance, not a one-off emotional experience. And so it's with this reality in mind that the only faith that is going to save you, that is going to save me, is a persevering faith. With that reality in mind, our author in these next few verses seeks to encourage and strengthen our resolve to keep trusting Jesus. To keep obeying Jesus, to spur us on to a persevering faith in Christ. And he does this by first quoting a passage of scripture from a psalm recorded in the Older Testament. More specifically, Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11, which is what we have cited in our passage in verses 7 through 11. So so just to be clear, beginning uh, in verse 7 with the word today, all the way to verse 11, which ends with the word rest, it's a quote. It's a quote of a passage of scripture, Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And what's profound is that the author of Hebrews attributes the, the authorship of this psalm not to any human pen, but to none other than the Holy Spirit. Look back at verse 7. He writes, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he goes on to quote the psalm. This means that God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the divine trinity, he speaks. He talks. He communicates with us through the scriptures. Passages like Psalm 95. And and if we look back at that historical context of the psalm, we'd see that it was originally written to be used in the context of Israel's corporate worship, the gathering of God's people. It's what we would call today a call to worship. Hence, uh, in verse 6 of that psalm, so, so just before what's quoted in our passage, the psalmist says these words. This is what he says. Oh, come, people of God, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And so what's important for us to know is that it's after this call to worship in corporate Congregation, among the corporate congregation in verses 1 through 6, that he says what's quoted in our passage. Namely, today, if you hear his voice. That means the psalmist believed. He believed it was possible to hear the voice of the living God, creator of heaven and earth, where? Where did God choose to reveal himself in corporate worship when the people of God gathered together to hear the reading and exposition of the scriptures and sing songs of praise? That's where he says we can hear the voice of God. And I argue that what was true for the generation of the psalmist 
And the generation of the author of Hebrews is still true for our generation today. So as we open up God's word together this morning, we're reminded by the author, we have gathered together this morning to hear from heaven. That's why we're here. We have come to hear God speak his voice. And on this graduation Sunday, the Holy Spirit says to us all in verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, I've heard that it's typical for youth pastors to usually have some story of an epic failure early in their ministry. Um, and for me, I remember I, I, um, I first got my job as a part-time youth pastor during my junior year at Moody Bible Institute, shout out Liv, and, and I was so excited. Uh, I, I finally got this opportunity uh, to preach and teach God's word, fulfill my calling, my dream, my passion, and they were going to pay me for it. <laughs> and I'm telling you, you know how hard it is to find a good part-time youth pastor job? Really hard. Uh, and so naturally, for my first Wednesday night, I, I wanted to put together this awesome event for the students, and I decided on hosting what I called the Student Ministry Olympics. And so I spent all this time coming up with different games and contests, things like a bean boozle eating contest, a classic relay race, you know, stuff like that. Now, meanwhile, as I'm trying to plot and plan and brainstorm, uh, my wife, Tiffany, the whole time is like, ah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's going to go that well. I don't think it's going to go as well as you think. Uh, you know, maybe just take it easy the few nights, right? Uh, learn the rhythms of things, wise and prudent advice from my blessed wife. But did I listen? No, no. And let me tell you, she was right. Uh, from the very first games, uh, things weren't going as well as I thought they would. Students were complaining. Most of them wanted to just do what they normally did, play basketball, open gym, hang out, normal rhythm. Um, but overall, it wasn't that bad. That is until the last game. See, I thought it was a great idea to scatter a bunch of dodgeballs all over the gym floor, marking one of them with an X. And then we blindfolded a group of students and uh, arm in arm sent them off to find this marked ball based on the verbal instructions from their non-blindfolded teammates. So blind teenagers running around to find a ball. <laughs> what could go wrong? What, what could go wrong? Well, nothing. Well, one thing I didn't anticipate. Uh, since we had youth group at a school, the volleyball team left up their nets after practice including the heavy-duty steel poles. So next thing I know, excited and running around, uh, this great young lady crashes forehead into one of these poles. And as she's laying on the floor in tears on my very first night, all I could think was, dang, I should listen to Tiffany. Man, I shouldn't have been so stubborn. I, I shouldn't have rejected her advice. And, and the writer says uh, this uh, and I share that story because that, that stubbornness, that unwillingness to listen, uh, to heed instruction, that's the idea behind this word harden, harden. 
It's used here to describe a posture of resistance, an unwillingness to submit, a refusal to trust. And in this case, not my wife's voice, the voice of God. And the writer says this hardening, this resistance to the voice of God, it happens to our hearts. Which is the word the Bible uses to describe the source, the fountainhead of our lives. What we say, what we feel, what we do is all generated from our hearts within, according to the Bible. So in in Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, which is what's quoted here in our passage, the main point of the psalmist is to urge the congregation, if you hear his voice, don't be stubborn. Don't resist. Don't close your ears and cover your eyes and say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know. Don't harden your hearts. That's the main point. And and by quoting this passage, the author of Hebrews is issuing that same challenge to us. Now, to give them a better idea of what it looks like to harden their hearts, the psalm, it goes on to remind them of their family history. You can learn a lot from family history. Warning them to not repeat the same mistakes. So look back at verse 8 with me. It says, do not harden your hearts as like in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers, your ancestors put me to the test. Now, if we were to compare the way Psalm 95 reads uh, in the Older Testament versus how the author of Hebrews quotes that psalm here in our passage, we notice that in Psalm 95, it says this, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. But our text reads as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And so so what's going on here? Uh, Well, in Psalm 95, it was written in Hebrew language, the Hebrew language, Uh, But our author uses a Greek translation for his readers. So instead of using a transliteration of either Meribah or Massa, his text just translates them according to their normal meaning in Hebrew. Rebellion for Meribah and testing for Massa. So both good translations. Now, Now why does that matter? Why does that matter to us? Well, it lets us know that the psalmist had a particular occasion in mind that really shows us what does a hard heart look like. What does that look like? Well, Meribah Massa, that's what it looks like. And, and that occasion is recorded in Exodus 17. Exodus 17. Uh, but to grasp why this event serves as such a vivid, clear example of a hard heart, we need to remind ourselves of what led up to this occasion. What led up to Exodus 17? And so at this point in the history of Israel, after suffering years of misery as slaves under the Egyptians, this generation saw with their own eyes the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, answer their cries and deliver them by sending 10 devastating plagues. They saw a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire appointed by God to lead them by day and night. They saw uh, God split the Red Sea through Moses. And yet, beholding all of those glorious, miraculous things that God has done, after, in chapter 15, they're praising him for it. Great is our warrior God. 
We find them complaining and arguing with Moses in Exodus 17. Two chapters later. Because when they arrived at their new campsite, apparently there wasn't enough water for them to drink. And they were upset. Which is an understatement. They're firing questions at Moses like, why did you, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us? And our children and our livestock with thirst? Instead, indeed, they're, they're so angry, it says that Moses, he cries out to God, leadership is hard. What shall I do with this people? They are ready to stone me. And you know the story, uh, God with unbelievable patience, uh, he then tells Moses to strike this rock at Horeb. And so he does, and water comes out for all the people to drink. And uh, so at the end of the account, it says in verse 7, and he, Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling, the rebelling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And for the psalmist, this Exodus 17 account, it serves as the paradigmatic example of what a hard heart looks like. God has done nothing but show this wilderness generation love and kindness and mercy. He's just delivered them from immense suffering. He's even bringing them into a new promised land flowing with milk and honey and blessing and abundance. And yet, they're already turning their back on him. And this example is just one of many. It's just one of many during the history of the wilderness generation. Hence... If you look back at verse 8 with me, it says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. <laughs> to make it even more clear, we could translate it as even though they saw the works of God for 40 years. In the book of Exodus, although God continues to graciously meet their needs over and over again, we find them doubting, complaining, rebelling. And in verses 10 through 11, the psalm records the result. What's the result of their hard hearts? What happens when we keep our hearts hard? Verses 10 and 11, it's the Lord speaking here in these two verses. And it says, therefore I, the Lord, was provoked. That I was brought to a holy, righteous indignation and anger with that generation. And said, this is, this is God's evaluation, they always go astray in their heart. They're always wandering, they're always giving themselves over to idols like money and sex and power and security. They have not known my ways. That is, they have not kept and obeyed my commands. And as a result, God says, as I swore, he makes an oath. The God who never lies, he makes an oath. In my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, when God made this particular oath, he was responding to when this generation refused to trust him out of fear of men. It was when they refused to invade Canaan because they didn't trust God to give them the victory. Numbers 14. But what the author of Hebrews is doing this morning by quoting this passage is telling us that the Holy Spirit gives us the same warning today. If you hear his voice, 
Don't be like that generation. Don't look upon the great mercy of God who has delivered us not from Egyptian slavery, but from sin and death and judgment through his son, Jesus, the very radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, who died for our sins. He says, don't look upon that Christ, graduates, and harden your hearts, lest you will find no rest, none, no peace, no serenity, no tranquility, none. Only wrath. Now, if that's true, then the question is, how does a wandering people like us avoid the tragedy of a hard heart? How do we avoid following the same pattern of the wilderness generation? And to answer that question, the author gives us two strategies. He gives us two defenses against a hard heart. Uh, And the first comes from verse 12. Look there with me. He simply writes, take care. Take care, brothers. And interestingly, the phrase translated here, take care, it actually just comes from the basic word used in Greek that means to see, to see blepo. Uh, But in this context, it takes on the idea of being watchful. On the lookout for danger. It means to be vigilant and on alert against a serious threat. And this is a common refrain throughout scripture. Uh, For example, when talking about how these false teachers are going to come claiming to be the Christ in the final days, Jesus warns the disciples in Matthew 24 verse 4. He says this, see, take care, same word, that no one leads you astray. When talking about the timing of his return, Jesus tells the disciples in Mark 13, 33, be on guard. Same word. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And the apostle Paul talks the same way. In Ephesians 5, verse 15, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, look carefully that no one takes you captive. I'm sorry, that, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And again, in Colossians 2, 8, Paul says, see to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And, and so what we see from these, just these few examples, is that, and there are many more, is that the Christian life is one of vigilance. We don't go through our days half asleep. We go with eyes wide open, watching for false teaching. Watching for the sin and corruption in our own hearts. And ultimately watching for the return of King Jesus. We are a watchful people. We are a vigilant people. Because there are serious, dangerous threats that seek to destroy us. And we are not naive. And in the latter half of verse 12... The author tells us even more why we must live this way, why we must be so cautious, so guarded of our hearts. Look there with me. Verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And we could add two. See, some of us might look upon the wilderness generation and think, you know, if I would have seen those ten plagues, 
If I would have seen Moses split the Red Sea, if God would have taken care of all my needs in a desert land, I never would have hardened my heart like them. Heck, all I'm looking for is a sign. But the author warns us saying, no, no, no. No, brothers and sisters, be watchful. Be careful. You are just as capable of developing an evil, unbelieving heart too. You're just like the Israelites. You're prone to wander. You're prone to leave the God you love. In fact, the author says, if you don't take care, if you leave your heart unguarded, if you welcome temptation into your life, it will ultimately lead us to fall away. Fall away, which is where we get our word apostasy in English. And this is no small matter because as it says here, it is the living God, the God of the Bible, who we fall away from. And no, that's why the author, he, he just so close, uh, closely associates evil with unbelief. Did you, did you catch how close he associated those two? He says an evil, unbelieving heart. Literally in Greek, it says an evil heart of unbelief, filled with unbelief. In other words, the primary characteristic of an evil heart is a distrust, a disbelief, and a rejection of God. Indeed, I'd argue uh, every form, every expression of evil, hatred, rape, murder, infidelity, gossip, greed, theft, every form of evil originates, it comes from humanity's decision to rebel against the living God. The living God. Brothers and sisters, sometimes I don't think we grasp the depths, the depths of pride and depravity in a heart that can look upon a being of absolute purity and love and goodness, a being of infinite power and wisdom, a being full of mercy and patience uh, all the days long, true and just in all his way, a being, this being who gives himself to sinners in his son, a heart that can look upon the living God and say, I don't want you. That is the very source of all evil. All evil comes from a rejection of the living God. Saints, the author warns us, take care, take care, please. Be watchful, guard your heart, don't be naive lest like the wilderness generation, you will fall away too. The second strategy, strategy to avoid a, heart, a hard heart is given to us in verse 13. The author writes, but, which indicates a contrast. That is, instead of developing a hard heart, and falling away from God, here's the remedy, here's the solution. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. This means that one of the greatest defenses, 
we have against falling away from the living God according to this passage is one another. Those in this room. Now, the word exhort, it just means to uh, just come alongside uh, someone with encouragement, with support, with accountability. Uh, but what's key for us to understand is the significance of that phrase, one another, one another. Because it's actually one of the most pervasive themes within all of the New Testament. Just, just listen how often it comes up. John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Romans 12, 10, love one another. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, 7, therefore welcome one another. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, comfort one another and agree with one another. Galatians 5, 13, through love serve one another. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? Teaching and admonishing one another. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Saints, it's clear from the entire testimony of the New Testament the will of God for our lives is to love, serve, welcome, forgive, instruct, show kindness, bear the burdens, submit, sing psalms together with one another. And this is why I love the local church. I love the local church. I love this gathering. The body of Christ, not the building, but the assembly, the gathering of a people, because God in his wisdom has made that gathering the hub, the nucleus, the center of all our one anothering. It's where we sing, pray, and hear the voice of God together, hence we've seen earlier. It's where we meet and develop connections with our brothers and sisters. It's where we gather our resources together to advance a kingdom that never perishes. It's where we partner to serve and show the light of the gospel to a dying world in darkness. When I got saved, I have a life of utter dysfunction and sin at the age of 18. Sure, the gospel came through an individual. But where did I go to grow? Where did I go to learn? Uh, where did I go to worship? Where did I go to connect and build friendships with my new family members? Where did I go to uh, uh, be discipled? Where did I go to serve and discover my calling? Where did I go? The local church. Judson Baptist in Joliet, Illinois. And, and, and it wasn't because the preaching was the most inspirational. And it wasn't because the worship team was incredible, and it wasn't because of its denominational background. I went out of instinct, out of the Holy Spirit's leading, for, for how could I live this life in Christ without the people of God? I couldn't. I'd fall away. 
My soul knew the importance of one anothering before I even read the New Testament. And and it's not just me. Ask any mature, prayerful, obedient, loving, growing disciple of Jesus. Ask them, would you be who you are today apart from the local church? I think they'd say no. I know I would. And I know us Americans believe in the power and responsibility of the individual. I get that. We understand the importance of grit and perseverance, even if we have to go at it alone. Mm -hmm. But according to the will of God, this fight against hell, this fight, fight against all the cosmic forces of darkness, this uh, uh, resistance against our sinful, prone-to-wander flesh, this war against the evil structures and values of this world, it cannot be done alone. We need each other. Hence the author says, exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today for this purpose, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, sin is a liar, a master deceiver, an expert illusionist, like a mirage of a luscious green oasis in the middle of a desert. Sin promises to quench our deepest thirst and hunger, but in the end, it leaves us dead. And not only does sin deceive, but it also gradually hardens the soul. One sin allowed makes a way for another sin, and another sin, and another sin, and before long, our conscience no longer feels convicted. Our minds are no longer troubled. We cozy up. We get comfortable with our sin and our hearts become hardened. They're they're desensitized to the things of God. Some of you felt that hardening happen. According to this passage then, it is through the encouragement of the body of Christ that we will overcome such a dangerous enemy. Now, in verse 14, the author reminds us of his overarching purpose in this passage. Look there with me. He writes, for we have come to share in Christ. That is, we have become partakers of every blessing, every honor given to us by the Son of God. We have come to share in Christ. If. If, on this condition, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm until the end. And so again, the author brings it back to his primary concern, and that is the only faith that saves. The only faith that restores us to the living God The only faith that secures an unfading, imperishable reward for us in heaven is a persevering faith. So saints, graduates, the Holy Spirit urges us this morning, 
Do not harden your hearts. Take care. Exhort one another as long as it is called today. Today is all we have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for each of these graduates. I praise you for them. The time spent with them. So Father, I pray by your grace and by your spirit, you would help them persevere. That you would deliver them from temptation. That you would lead them, guide, direct, help them in their time of need. And Father, we pray that all for us as well. Lord, we need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.